I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? We got legal on this? Yeah, I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. In what felt more like a war than a football game at times last night, we saw what should have been the best Thursday night football game we've seen in years end up as just another Thursday night football game as seemingly everybody of consequence got hurt in the game. The Bengals or the, the Bengals end up falling by a score of 20 to 34 to the Baltimore Ravens. But the injuries are all anybody's going to be talking about, Brad. We're going to hit that today. Review the game a little bit, talk about the uh, the playoff picture, as well as hit some of these injuries in the boo-boo breakdown later on. How's it going, Brad? Yeah, it's going great. Yeah, the boo-boo breakdown. Vic, man, we, that guy's the hardest working guy at PFF, I think. <laughs> He's going to be after this game, absolutely. Like half the uh, half the roster on both sides were, uh, were relevant to the boo-boo breakdown. Everybody got injured. At one point. Unfortunately, yes, and I guess I'll just jump in right there. Look, football is a dangerous sport. There are, uh, you know, some, some plays that maybe do look a little bit uh, questionable. I think if you saw the play in the Pitt football game last night in college, mm-hmm. the worst tackle attempt I've ever seen in my entire life, you could have a gripe there. But Ian Rappaport, my guy, I don't know why you're tweeting that Logan Wilson like is, is having like three casualties in a game. I know he's wearing 55 for the Bengals, but – the, the whole hip drop thing is a, is a complicated conversation on Mark Andrews. I'm not really sure how else he's supposed to tackle him. Um, and then I saw nothing malicious with the Lamar tackle or the Odell Beckham tackle. But, yeah, unfortunately, you know, like you said, every player of consequence on offense seemed to go down with something, you know, throughout the game last night. Yeah, at one point Steve tweeted something like, the Bengals just turned into the Bears in the course of 15 minutes. <laughs> Everybody relevant got hurt, and now they're no longer a good team. Um, I want to get into the Logan Wilson thing uh, right after we talk to you about securing your family's financial future, starting with life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Yeah, the so the Wilson tackle on Mark Andrews was interesting to me because I was trying to work out why those tackles happen in football so much and don't in rugby. Um, the like rugby league has banned the hip drop tackle as a concept right but generally speaking it's not a tackle that happens that all that often in rugby union anyway like i can't remember forget the hip drop part of it i can't remember the last time a guy hurt his ankle because his ankle got trapped under the tackler in rugby like it just doesn't come up part of that i think is definitely because way more often a guy is like the tackles are heading towards each other right like you there's a much smaller instance of both the guys running in the same direction which is where they were here but I think there's also something to rugby kind of deliberately sliding down the legs rather than hanging on midway and then swinging your body which is where it gets into trouble so I kind of agree with you where there's definitely some hip drop tackles in football that are bad and honestly are no different from the horse collar that they outlawed years ago you know Dallas's Roy Williams used to be like the the horse collar was his thing right he'd grab hold of the guy in the back ride them down break their ankles essentially that was the way that tackle was going that's why they banned it the hip drop drop is effectively exactly the same thing you're just starting from a lower point instead of going up at the neck you're grabbing them around the waist but the the 
the mechanism is the same. You're jumping on the back of their ankles as you're tackling them. That's where the injuries are occurring. This, I don't think, was even necessarily that. He just kind of, in the course of tackling him, swung around and ended up trapping his ankle under him. So it is an unusual mechanism when it happens like this, the ones that are not, like, really bad and clearly, you know, against the sort of the spirit of it almost. This is just some weird um, function of tackling in football that doesn't seem to happen in, you know, other contact sports. Yeah, the interesting thing here, too, is I think, you know, because we've taken launching away from tackling, when, again, like, we're, we're not, like, pro-injury or pro some of the gnarly hits that happen in football, but I think when I was growing up, like, you probably wouldn't see this is because guys would just launch forward. And, of course, you can try not to lead with the crown of your helmet. You can make sure it's shoulder first and you are launching forward appropriately, but you're going to get, you know, when a guy leaves his feet in that manner, you're still going to get some, not targeting, but, you know, defenseless receiver or unnecessary roughness or very different calls and so it almost to me this obviously wasn't a sack but I think you've seen a lot of quarterbacks get rolled up on and have ankle issues because now these defensive linemen are saying all right if I launch forward I might get a body weight call against me because I I, kind of lose control when I launch forward so I'll grab the guy and just pull him on top of me but that's when you then twist the lower extremities and things like this happen so it's just like it's kind of impossible right now to have a way to tackle where you're not probably going to get penalized. I agree. I'm not even sure I would put this in the hip drop category. I think we've seen worse instances for sure. It's just, it's tough. Like we don't want to see the best players in the league leave, but defenders have to be able to tackle the offensive players. Um, and it's a struggle right now. Yeah. There's something with the kind of swing that like the, the torquing around of the guy's body that causes this kind of tackle versus just dropping down and, um, you know, and, and finishing the tackle. Like, there's there's sometimes where the differences between football tackling and rugby tackling are because of the yardage. You know, you don't want to – giving up yardage is more important at the contact point in football than it is in rugby where it doesn't really make it – it doesn't change anything other than giving them a little bit of go-forward momentum. This, I don't think, was one of those situations, though. I think a rugby tackle finishes this play in exactly the same yard marker as the, the hip drop type of tackle or the swing thing did – so I don't think that explains what was happening with this one. I think it's just a strange, there's some mechanism whereby that like swinging of the body is causing these ankles to get crushed underneath and injuring guys. And I don't know if you, if they're going to go the way, I think definitely they should outlaw the type of hip drop tackle that is effectively just a horse collar, but lower down. Um, but I, even if they did that, I don't know if this tackle qualifies. I'm really not sure it does. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I get that it looks like the beginning of that type of mechanism of how he approached it. But like like you said, there's a swinging element to where like you use all of your momentum to kind of swing forward and then pull back. And that's what causes, you know, the, like, again, the lower extremities kind of get trapped underneath you. I don't think it's really what happened here with Logan Wilson. It's just tough. I mean, Andrews is a massive part of this team, you know, obviously kind of going off of that, obviously injuries abound for both teams and and losing Joe Burrow potentially at five and five for a couple of weeks versus the eight and three Ravens, you know, might, might make it harder for them to make the playoffs. But if Mark Andrews is out for the year, it was good to see Odell Beckham Jr. Look like himself through, through most of this game. Obviously Zay Flowers making plays. Nelson Aguilar keeps kind of popping up and splashing here and there. You did get a Bateman touchdown as well, but not having the number one focal point receiving target for this team of Mark Andrews. Like, I, I do think Baltimore right now for me is a top five team in the NFL, number two team in the AFC behind Kansas City. Frankly, I think it's not even really close. Um, I'd say Miami now is probably number three in that conversation. But not having Mark Andrews come playoff time is is brutal for the Baltimore Ravens to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And who knows what OBJ's injury is going to be like. I mean, it, this, it felt a little bit like the Super Bowl, you know, where he, he was absolutely crushing it. And then as soon as he's back looking 100%, we're going to take away his ACL. Like, this looked like OBJ, old OBJ, like actually making plays, um, looking like 100%, and then immediately shoulder injury out of the game, you know, on the sideline. So hopefully that's not going to be a long-term thing because, yeah, they might be able to offset the loss of Mark Andrews if Beckham is going to be back at full speed. Zay Flowers' numbers weren't good in this game, but like multiple big plays sort of taken away from him by penalties, negated by penalties. And it's not – they haven't, I don't think, massively expanded his route tree or anything, he, but he showed the kind of plays he can make from a 
limited route tree, only they don't show up in the stat sheet because there were penalties. And the officiating is another thing that came out of this game. It was horrendous. I mean, they were like not even the letter of the law. Just if you are even touching a defender or a, 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 a receiver, we're going to throw pass interference on this. Like, what are we doing with some of these calls? The biggest thing for me, because I've had conversations about this for the last month now, because it's been horrible in both college and pro. I personally, as like a non-fan of these teams, but also a lot of the games that's happening, I think every fan can find a way to think it's like skewed against them. And it's like, oh, the refs are fixing this game. I think there's just been objectively horrible officiating in all directions. And I think this game is probably a prime example that the blocking penalty on Odell Beckham Jr., like you just mentioned, Zay Flower should have had a, what, a 60-yard touchdown catch on that play, um, was it was a phantom call. The, the the pass interference on DJ Turner, which I think was a target to Zay Flowers, yeah. also a complete phantom call. I mean, there's just like, like you said, it's not even – Oh, it's Tiki Tack or like a like a Cooper DeJean at Iowa, for example, where we just hate what the rule says. And like you could probably say, well, technically, like DeJean did wave his arms and whatever. Like, no, it's just like they're just like they're just making calls and just throwing stuff out there. I think even on a smaller level, there's all that little, you know, there's always kind of the, the, the grace period with the with the play clock and getting the ball off right around zero. Zach Taylor was clearly incensed at one of the later delay of game calls where it was like, yeah, was it between one and zero? Like, yeah, it probably was. But, like, this is the third time you've called this on us now. So was the enforcement there kind of not consistent? But, yeah, it's it, it's a problem. Like, I know we, we probably have the conversation most years, but I feel like this year across the board, among all members of the media, whatever, and fans, it's as bad as I can remember it being. This particular game felt like a crew – who was calling the first game they've ever called and their only like previous experience of the rules is just the book, like the rule book with zero practical application of how they actually, you know, are impacted or are called in, in real time events. Like the, the sort of the, the unspoken way that they do that delay of game thing, right? You get the clock to zero, then we take a look back, then we look back, and then it's like, you know, you get you almost get like a second grace period in the NFL at this point. Whereas they're like, no, the, the, the absolute millisecond it hits zero, we're, flow, we're throwing delay of game. And it's like, okay, technically that might be correct, but it's simply not the way it's ever done. So when you decide to do it one game at a, in isolation that doesn't bear any resemblance to anything else you're just jacking this game you either need to make that a policy blanket across the board or do it the same way everybody else does and the same thing with like the pass interference stuff right it's like i have read by the letter of the law that if there's like contact in it in any way shape or form potentially impedes the receiver that's a yellow flag but it's like yeah but not when the receiver is like twisting back and happens to touch the DB whilst contorting back for the football. That's not that's not pass interference the way anybody else in the world recognizes it. You can only think that if you've just like read the rule book and then thrown the thing out without ever like officiating a game before. It was bizarre. And I agree with you. It's not like it's clearly not a conspiracy. It's not, you know, the script. It's not anybody trying to rig the game. It's Hanlon's razor, right? Like don't attribute to malice what is just stupidity or incompetence it's just bad it's just bad officiating it's just bad and then the last piece you know the dpi stuff with the underthrown deep balls like look it's never going to change because i mean the nfl is scrambling to find offense actually kind of ironic this game i don't know how this game went over the total comfortably but somehow it did <laughs> um but with the underthrown defensive pass interference stuff and obviously the last two primetime games now we have the bills broncos which basically decided the outcome of that game and then this game a couple times for jake browning and for uh you know lamar i think at one point had one too maybe it was burrow earlier on i it being a spot foul i think often does make sense you know compared to 15 yards only for college Maybe there needs to be some sort of conversation of like, it, where is the receiver standing at the time of the release of the, of the quarterback throwing the ball? And then if he has to go backwards to make the catch, maybe that should be a 15-yarder, not a 50-yard penalty, you know, because it, because it's such such an underthrown pass. Like, you know, jo Joe Flacco flying to Cleveland, shout out the legend of the underthrown DPI. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's what the Browns said. They said, look, this play is the hottest play in the NFL, and this is the maestro, the master of it all. Let's get him in the building. I do find that one, I think that's just a difficult play that doesn't have a good, a good solution to it because 
like it, it it's rewarding a bad throw, right? Like the throw is underthrown, it's a bad throw. On the other hand, if the DB doesn't run into the receiver, the receiver probably adjusts to it better and catches it, and it should be, you know, a 50-yard completion anyway. So, like the reason it is pass interference and a spot foul is because that DB is not the guy keeping an eye on the football. He careens right into the receiver, and it does probably take a big completion off the table, uh, and the wide receiver usually in these situations is is ahead anyway so he kind of won the first part of the route was on his way to winning the adjustment and then gets taken out by the db who was unlucky and is getting screwed by the fact that the ball was bad in the first place so it's a weird play but i do kind of think that the way it it's called at the moment stupid though it seems is actually correct like i can't i can't think of a better solution to this right because i don't think it's fair if it was just either you say, well, if it's underthrown and, you know, it's not a penalty anymore, which seems really wrong. Or you say, well, if it's this type of throw, it's not a spot foul. It's only 15 yards or whatever. But then you're like, well, he's he can just run right into a receiver and negate what would have been a 50-yard catch and turn it into a 15-yard one, right? It's That doesn't feel great either. I think this is probably a situation where it is already the least bad option on the table it's just it's still bad yeah i think this ties into the last kind of thing i wanted to touch on or one other topic i suppose of the game like there are so many nuances and little like ticky tech elements to all of these things look the joe burrow situation i think is worth having a conversation about from last night yeah. we all saw the brace on his wrist coming out of the plane on his throwing hand the Bengals deleting that tweet, I think, probably doesn't help the situation in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I thought Mitchell Schwartz, friend of the pod, made a great point. Like, if Joe Burrow was listed as full wrist full participant the entire week, like, would people really have made this massive deal about it? Also, sorry if you can hear the landscaping going on in the background uh, over here. But anyway, um, like, probably not, right? If it's, okay, well, yeah, Burrow's dinged up, but he's fine. He's a full participant. He's not getting, like, extensive treatment. And then the game comes on. He, I thought he had a couple nice throws. He, he zipped the ball to Tyler Boyd on that touchdown drive. He was kind of behind on a bunch of throws, though, too, early in that game, particularly over the middle, just not a ton of velocity and, like, a step behind his receiver on, I would say, three or four different throws. But – I do wonder, there's now reports that there are investigations going on into the Bengals and should they have disclosed this and all of that. But tying back to the whole, like, ticky-tack nature, guys, every single player is probably hurt to some degree at every moment of the NFL season. Are they getting minor treatment here and there for bumps and bruises and twists and turns? Like, yes, probably. So I know with gambling now, integrity and all that is very complicated. I, I, I don't have a bet on this game, but if you had the Bengals, I understand why you'd probably be frustrated <laughs> I noted, I mean, the Amazon Prime broadcast themselves promoted a parlay with Joe Burrow's passing touchdowns as one of the legs of the parlay. Like, it's difficult, but it's just, it's very, very tough to kind of, you know, I think there was a lot of hindsight analysis. I think Florio may have had the Bengals uh, money line in, in that game. That's what it felt like. <laughs> but anyway, it's just, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, I mean, Schwartz was making the point that you know, the rule. So everyone's like, oh, this is against the rules. Well, it might not be right. Technically, the rules are only it's you essentially need to appear in the injury report if practice is affected. Right? right. So if he was a full participant all the way through the week or sorry, if practice was affected and or if you received official treatment for whatever the thing was. Right. So if you were a full participant all the way through the week and they didn't do anything to you. The fact that you are hurt is irrelevant. It's not, that's not something you have to report, that I, my wrist is sore if none of these things were impacted, right? So it isn't necessarily against the rules. Now, the fact that he had some sort of brace on it and the team deleted that tweet is maybe suggesting that he did receive some treatment for it, and that would be a violation of the rules. But like, just because we saw him rock up with something on his hand and then his hand was hurt doesn't mean anybody did anything wrong in terms of you know, hiding injuries or yada, yada. Um, and it is completely unrealistic to be like every single thing any player is dealing with needs to show up in the injury report because everybody's dealing with something at this point in the season. It would be never-ending, the injury report. And then you would have the opposite thing, which is instead of, oh, here are the players I need to focus on, it's like, how do I wade through this, like, 
tome of injuries and determine who's actually hurt and who's just this is a thing that's on the injury report that's the thing it's just it's too much and then also another former player that uh, got ignored i guess so he was tweeting about how he got ignored chris long like he found yeah, the play in the Texans game. I think it was the second snap of the game, he yeah. said, or at least for the Bengals' offense. Joe Burrow went on to have a very good game against Houston. Yeah, did he miss a couple throws? Sure. What was it, third or fourth quarter? He had a deep touchdown to Jamar Chase. Like, he clearly played through it and was fine. Yeah, he fell down yesterday, I think, on a Javion Clowney hit and landed on that wrist. And then, obviously, that was pretty much curtains for the game. But, yeah, it's just we, we can't go up in arms and, and, like, freak out about integrity and try to get your bets back and all that stuff. Like, it's just... It's a risk you take as part of the game. There are certainly probably cases where it's, you know, like, like you, you can fairly question what's going on and be frustrated, and this might be one of them. But a guy wearing a compression sleeve on a plane to keep down swell, swell, swelling, swelling, whatever, uh, like that's probably happening on every single plane on every single weekend of every single football game. But this is the inevitable, like, shitstorm of the NFL getting into bed with gambling companies. Like this is part of the reason they didn't ever want any part of this and wanted to stay as far away as humanly possible from any reference to gambling or any of this stuff. Now you have official sports betting partners of the NFL. Like this is the, this is what you run into. Like you're going to cause these types of problems where people don't want to give you the benefit of the doubt anymore because you have a rooting, a vested interest in this stuff. Now it might not, again, Hanlon's razor, right? Were they, were they corrupt or were they just incompetent? Like I would tend to assume incompetence rather than corruption, but this is the type of problem that this creates. Last piece I want to touch on here, uh, just get back to football a little bit. Mm. Is the Ravens safety trio now with the Marcus Williams, healthy Marcus Williams, the best safety unit in the NFL? And if yes, like by what margin would you, would you say they are? Um, yeah, as a, well, them, ironically, the Vikings might be the other one now that they use their three safeties and they're all over the place. Cameron Bynum, I think, has got a top five grade. Harrison Smith is still really good. Josh Metellus is making plays seemingly every week, these crazy plays where he's popping up all over the place, ripping the ball out of people. So I think those are the two teams that you would look at and say are the only ones that even have an argument for that. Um, but, yeah, the way Baltimore are using those guys is really impressive. Uh, Kyle Hamilton in particular, I mean, just remember, like, the hysteria around Hamilton when they drafted him. You know, people were wondering, how high can you take that guy? He then ran a, what, a 4-6 or whatever. That torpedoed his draft stock. And then there was training camp videos of him getting lit up by a slot receiver. And it's like, oh, it's a disaster. And now he's one of the most impactful safeties in the NFL. He's top 10 in coverage grade and pass rush grade among safeties. Yeah, he's been exceptional. I will say this, though. Because it ties into Tyler Linderbaum at center as well, who allowed zero pressures last night and has been phenomenal pretty much all season long. Going to the positional value conversation. Look, the Ravens already had a franchise quarterback, left tackle, corner. Um, you know, Dafe Owe was a first-round pick. Rashad Bateman was a first-round pick. Like, I, I think you can do that. And, and I'm not even going to call it a luxury pick, but... You can, like, if it's the best player in the class, clearly at their position, you know, which I think was not even debatable for either Kyle Hamilton or Tyler Linderbaum, I think we sometimes lose that context matters in roster construction. Like, the same decision by each team is not the same thing. If a team that was super far away and didn't have any edge rush, tackles, receivers, quarterback, took a center or a safety in the first round, it's probably not like a good pick. But when a team like Baltimore does it that has all of those positions addressed or at least they're you know, using assets there as well, it's a different calculus. But, you know, anyway, credit to them. that they, they took the two best players in the class at their spots and they're playing like it pretty much immediately. Yeah. Um, shout out to Trey Hendrickson for giving it a shot last night. I mean, yeah. he made he had one sack that looked really good. Uh, and, you know, everyone was sort of like, oh, Trey Hendrickson, we thought he was going to be hampered with this knee injury. I mean, if you look at his, the totality of his work, he was. He only had two pressures. That sack was one of them. Um, he played 44 snaps. I mean, that's not the Trey Hendrickson that we've come to expect, particularly going up against a guy like Patrick McCarry, um, somebody that, you know, is exploitable. So that play was fantastic. Trey Hendrickson playing itself was impressive, but it definitely hampered him, and that was that was a blow to, to, to Cincinnati's defense. Like, Hendrickson's play this season has been one of the reasons that that defense has moved in the right direction over the year. 
Yeah, and you know, to speak on that, I mean, we are so used to Lou Anarumo's defense in Cincinnati being a top unit across the league. They're now uh, second worst in yards per attempt allowed. They are dead last in explosive pass play rate allowed against them. Um, they're 30th in yards after contact per reception. Like, they are really, really struggling. And, and I think people point to, which is, of course, true, losing Jesse Bates, losing Von Bell, that, that defensive line, and obviously Sam Hubbard is hurt, but I think DJ Reader, after some injuries, isn't quite the same guy anymore. B.J. Hill got dinged up, obviously, during this game. Um, you know, rookie Miles Murphy did play about 30 snaps last night, had two pressures, but I, I don't even remember, frankly, where those plays came. Um, it's, it, you know, it, it shows the variance in defense. It's just so hard to maintain that level. I mean, they are... Like you said, they actually were trending in a positive direction the last couple of weeks, but um, that might be heading heading back towards the other direction. It, it's it's what they needed to carry them through. T. Higgins' absence, Joe Burrow getting banged up multiple times now, and it's just it's not really there right now. All right, we're going to talk about the uh, the playoff picture, particularly the teams towards those wild card spots and who has a shot at actually making it. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Prize Picks. Our prize picks uh, lineup this week. We've got uh, three guys we're going to look for. Kareem Hunt, uh, more than 30.5 rushing yards against Pittsburgh. Tank Dell, my guy, rookie receiver, absolutely killing it right now. More than 57.5 receiving yards against the Arizona Cardinals and their questionable defense. Um, and then, of course, kicking uh, kicking. Uh, attempts kicking selections chris boswell more than 1.5 field goals made so that is our prize picks lineup this week um, with the basketball season here you can also pick combo projections across football and basketball from the specials league a league created specifically for combo projections that include two or more players from different sports or leagues for example lebron and travis kelsey at a 10 and a half combo of three point uh, three pointers made and catches Want to play alongside some of Price Picks' favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz? You can now find community plays under the Promos tab of the app to view entries from some of the biggest names in the Price Picks community each week. Price Picks even offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, if you have a player who exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. Price Picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an insurance policy for injuries. Uh, go to pricepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's pricepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. All right, Brad. Uh, Playoff picture. Let's start in the AFC where everything is getting chaotic. The current wildcard seedings. Pittsburgh is number five at six and three. Cleveland Browns are number six at six and three. And the Houston Texans are number seven at five and four. Um, the Steelers, of course, everybody keeps waiting for them to fall over because they've been literally outgained in every single game so far this season. And the Browns don't have a quarterback, and they're down so bad they're getting Joe Flacco to hop on a plane. Um, and then the Houston Texans, you know, rookie quarterback, and who knows if they'll be able to sustain the good run that they have. So we've kind of been waiting for Cincinnati, who are 500, um, Buffalo, who are 500. Like those teams, the wild cards are there for them to get, but is that actually going to happen? At this point, I think think it probably is in pittsburgh i mean they now are going to get dorian thompson robinson this week maybe jake browning the week after that and then you have a bunch of easy games going forward um as well i think you have arizona on the schedule um they, they could be 10 and 3 the patriots are on the schedule the colts are on the schedule like they, they have quite the road ahead of them the, the the mike tomlin voodoo magic uh is alive and well in pittsburgh it really is um i think you have to look at the browns and say they're probably falling out of that spot i mean even if Joe Flacco comes in, I okay, he had one nice game for the Jets, right? But there was nothing else from Joe Flacco's tape that suggested he was going to have a team in the playoffs. Um, so I, you feel like the Browns are probably going to fall out of that spot. And, you know, Houston might stay there, but I don't know if they're going to improve dramatically on, you know, one game above 500 at this point. So all these teams that are sitting there at 500 or even a game back, like the Jets at 4-5, and five, the Chargers at 4-5, and five, if any of them can string together a run of three wins, 
they can catapult themselves into like the seventh seed in the AFC. But AFC East in particular is super interesting the next couple of weeks. You have Bills Jets this weekend. You then have Dolphins Jets the week after that. Uh, and then I think the Dolphins and Jets play again like two weeks later uh, for the, what is it, the uh, Amazon Prime. Maybe it's the, the Black Friday game or I don't know, maybe Christmas Eve, whatever it is. So like there is a lot of big AFC East games coming up with massive leverage involved there. Um, but yeah, I do think those teams like a Houston, I, I think, is in the mix because they're still going to have some AFC South matchups. They already have a game in hand against Jacksonville. So they could honestly like the division might even be a better path for them than a wild card, which sounds really crazy to say. But what they beat Jacksonville 37, 17 in Jacksonville already this season. Um, they play again soon, I want to say so. Yeah, the AFC picture is pretty ma- is pretty wild. Um, but I think it, right now it looks like Kansas City, Baltimore, Miami are in the driver's seats, um, and then it's just kind of chaos beyond that. I do think though that you know Buffalo in their panic right now, firing an offense coordinator, trying to get right the ship. Like, okay, their schedule is brutal, but I still feel like they're in a pretty good shape to snag a playoff spot. Probably should be. I don't know. I just like you mentioned the offense. The thing for me is. Since week five, and they've played in this span, the Patriots, Giants, Buccaneers, and another bad team I'm forgetting are dead last in the NFL and EPA per play allowed. Like, their defense is a, is a, is a problem right now, um, and I'm not really sure how it could get any better. Um, I, I guess if Von Miller, you know, just ha- hits the fountain of youth and gets healthy um, and starts playing like old school Von Miller, but I don't know. I'm not super bullish on Buffalo. Obviously, the most stable thing is offense, and their offense has been good. So I probably shouldn't say that. But, but yeah, as every quarterback across the league gets hurt more and more, particularly in in the AFC, it probably does open up that window for Buffalo to sneak in as the wildcard team that absolutely no one wants to play come January. Are there any of the teams currently sitting in first place in their division that you think could drop out over the course of the season? Um, Jacksonville are only a game up over Houston. The Dolphins are a game and a half up over the um, the Buffalo Bills that we were talking about with the tiebreaker. So that's effectively two games. And then you have Baltimore now, what, two games clear of the Steelers and the Browns and then the Bengals dropping off. I think the biggest one for me is, which shocks me to say, is Jacksonville. I, I really do think they they have an issue. Uh, shout out Mina Kimes had a, a good tweet talking about how like some OL metrics aren't really capturing how much of a struggle it's been for Jacksonville right now because Trevor Lawrence's average time to throw, I think, is second fastest behind Tua. I looked at our metrics. They're a little bit different. I think they're like right now what she highlighted was between two and a half and four second dropbacks looking at, you know, pressure rate pass rush win rate, all that stuff. I mean, she said for her, what she was looking at, they were dead last. I think on our metrics, they're second to last or third to last. So, like, they really cannot hold up. And you've had two opponents now, back-to-back weeks, say, if you cover the first read for Trevor Lawrence, you can stop this offense. And I'm not sure that was a dig at Trevor or a dig at the, you know, pass protection, maybe a little bit of both. Um, but it, it's a problem. And then I think their defense is playing pretty well, but they're kind of a pass funnel now. They're great against the run. They're still not particularly good in coverage. I think that's the one. And Houston winning their division uh, after we thought they were probably going to have a top five pick on Arizona uh, would be pretty awesome. Yeah, it would be crazy. Okay, let's move to the NFC. Um, the current division leaders, the Eagles at 8-1, and one, the Lions at 7-2, and two, the 49ers at 6-3, and three, and the Saints at 5-5. Five and five. And then you have the wildcard spots currently occupied by the Seattle Seahawks, also at 6-3, and three, the Dallas Cowboys at 6-3, and three, and the Minnesota Vikings at 6-4, and four, the Josh Dobbs-led Minnesota Vikings. So uh, same kind of idea with the AFC. Um the teams on the bubble are looking to get into those playoff spots. They have a tougher grind. They are all two or one and a half games back from these teams currently sitting in the wild card spots. This looks like a more settled playoff picture than the AFC. It come across as a bold prediction because it's listed right now, but I think it actually is. I think the playoffs are going to be exactly what it just looked like right there. I think every <laughs> single team is in the seed they're going to be in. Uh, maybe Dallas jumps ahead of Seattle because I'm a little bit concerned about Seattle right now. And I cannot wait for Dallas at New Orleans for like a 40 to 10 win in, in the wild card round. Um, that'll, that'll be a fun one. Nice. Um, do you think that the Vikings could actually overhaul Detroit? Because their schedule is still an absolute cupcake. And then they have the two games against Detroit. I mean, if they are able to win one of those, they've got a good shot. If they win both of them, I think they could absolutely leapfrog Detroit. 
entirely possible because this Lions defense, you really have Aiden Hutchinson and Aline McNeil kind of doing all the work right now up front. They have some good rotational pieces, but they're asking rotational players to be high-end 50-snap starters, and it's just not working right now. And then you know, the loss of Emmanuel Mosley on the back end. Obviously, I love their their safeties trio and Brian Branch and, and Cam Sutton's played well. Thought he had his worst game of the year last week, but but like they are a defense that I think can be taken advantage of against good opponents. And I think Minnesota, even with Josh Dobbs, especially if you drop into Justin Jefferson, are going to be able to score on that team. And then you know Christian Darrisaw, Brian O'Neill against an Aiden Hutchinson, I'll take that matchup if I'm Minnesota. So I want to say yes, but I don't know. At the end of the day, like I do think the talent disparity leans fairly yeah. in Detroit's favor. But, yeah, I guess I shouldn't rule it out. I mean, Minnesota, like you said, both games in hand. However, those swing could determine the division. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I think the Lions are a better team than Minnesota and probably by a significant margin. But when you look at the schedule, I mean, Minnesota's hardest game this season, they've already got out of the way and they won it, right, against San Francisco. I guess Philadelphia as well, you could argue. But the Lions still have a game against Dallas coming up. Um, the hardest game on Minnesota's schedule remaining looked like Cincinnati, but they might not have Joe Burrow at that point. So then you're looking at Denver, Chicago, the Vegas Raiders, the Bengals with potentially without Joe Burrow. Um, we have a Green Bay game in there and then those two games against Detroit. I mean, there's nothing there that isn't winnable from Minnesota's point of view. And they may end up going into that, those games with Detroit. I mean, they might have jumped them at that point in the season. And then if they can split the series, they're, they're there. Good point. That'd be incredible. Josh Dobbs winning a division for his third team in the last six months is the storyline this NFL season needs. The third team within this season would be insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, okay, so what else do we think? Looking at the the teams outside of the picture jumping in, there's nobody, right? I mean, the Bucks, the Bucks would be the closest one because they're the only team. They're the only uh, wild, or they're the only non-playoff team that's within a couple of wins of the playoffs because the Saint that division stinks. South is uh, funnily enough is probably still wide open for for every team besides Carolina. I right. mean Atlanta obviously trending in a horrible direction right now, but all three of those teams per uh, you know the great work that Timo Reiskate does in our uh, power rankings, the Saints have the easiest remaining schedule in the NFL. Falcons have the third easiest schedule remaining in the NFL. And the Buccaneers have the fifth easiest schedule remaining in the NFL. So, I mean, a lot of that is obviously playing each other because right. that is the worst division in, in the league this year. Um, I think it's still going to be New Orleans, even if we get uh, some more Jameis, you know, three touchdown, three interception type games. I still trust them the most in that division. But, yeah, Tampa or Atlanta winning, I, I guess, is not out of the realm of possibilities. I just think it doesn't really matter who wins that division, you know, come come playoff time. Right. Um, the other question, obviously, is you know, 49ers or Seahawks within that division. They're both tied at 6-3 and three right now. The 49ers showed last week they are still the 49ers, certainly when they have their healthy uh, playmakers back, whether it's Trent Williams, um, Debo Samuel, or the combination of both of them at the same time. That made them look like a completely different outfit. It feels like that 49ers team wins the division comfortably. If they get injuries and they're forced to be the other team, you know, the, the team that lost three straight, Maybe we have a different conversation, but if they stay healthy, I think they should win the division, right? I wanted to believe in Seattle maybe making the jump. I mean, folks who listen to the forecast know that I'm, you know, my biggest bet of the offseason may have been Seattle plus I think it was 550 to win the NFC West. The loss of Uchano and Wosu is massive, and we have seen a breakout from Boye Mafe. I mm. think at this point you can call it like we should expect him to be a good player. It's been like six, seven weeks in a row now. He's been an impact guy, but and obviously you trade for Leonard Williams, but you know then you get boat raced by Baltimore the first game. Uh, you have those guys, and I just I don't know if they have enough up front on both sides of the ball in the trenches. Obviously love the receivers, obviously love the secondary, uh, but I just like you said, if San Fran stays healthy, and I want to say both of those games are remaining between those two teams. I just think they're going to bully them up front. And was it Kyle Shanahan? Doesn't he beat Pete Carroll every single time they play? Basically, right. So really the only team in, in, the, in the NFC playoff picture that's in any remote jeopardy of dropping out of it is the Saints, and they have the, the easiest schedule remaining in the NFL. Exactly. Yeah, so the, we should have done that the other way around, really. The NFC is, has a lot less playoff jeopardy in it than the AFC does where the picture is chaotic. Uh, but we didn't. You know, we did it this way, and that's the way you're getting it. So that'll do for the, uh, the playoff picture. And now we're going to head over to our guy, Vic Troja to talk about injuries. 
All right, back on our Friday, as always, with our guy Victor how to talk injuries. And we could have an entire show based off just last night's game. Right. Everybody in that Thursday night game between the Bengals and the Ravens got hurt at one point or another. Yep. Insane. Um, let me start with the Mark Andrews thing because he was the latest victim of one of these hip drop tackles where his leg gets caught under the tackle, injures an ankle, immediately he was in trouble. You know, they're calling for the stretcher, et cetera, on the field. And it came out pretty quickly that it looks like he's done for the year. Yep. What they were just sort of calling it, you know, an ankle injury. People were saying high ankle at the time. What has to have happened to his ankle for them to be saying on November the 17th that he's done for the year? Right. So the fact that that actually came out so fast tells you that there is significant damage there. Uh, he got an x-ray right at the game um, in stadium. Hasn't had the report sent out, at least from my knowledge yet, about what the x-ray results are. But even then, you know that there's some ligamentous tearing. So that might mean surgical approach to reattach some of those ligaments in the ankle. If not, it's just the fact that the severity of this high ankle sprain was so significant and enough tearing that he's just not gonna um, try to attempt to come back. It could be something where they do like a tightrope surgery in the ankle to reattach and resecure some of those ligaments. Or if there is a fracture involved, then he's gonna be in a boot and he won't even be able to return this season. So um, they did come out pretty fast and say that. So it tells me that it's definitely on the more severe side. I just don't know to the extent of what happened. Right. And his reaction at the time was severe, like yes. relative to some of these, like, you know, an ankle injury, I'm sure it hurts, mm -hmm. uh, those high ankle sprains, but they don't react the way he did when he went down, was immediately in intense pain. Yeah. That suggests something major happened. He knew something significant happened, and he's been known to battle through injuries too, so the fact that he was in that much pain and pretty much ruled out instantly, um, we can kind of guarantee that there is some more damage than just a traditional ankle sprain. Okay, probably the biggest injury in the game, Joe Burrow and his yeah. hand slash wrist. Yep. What was going on there? Because this was not an injury that anybody knew about heading into the game other than the fact that they captured video of him wearing this weird uh, brace, sleeve, whatever it was, on his wrist uh, coming off the plane. And then, obviously, at some point during the game, he just couldn't throw the ball anymore. Right. He definitely had a brace uh, pregame. And even watching some of the film of him pregame, he didn't really show a lot with that right arm until he started warming up. And when I look at that, um, initially I thought that there could be some type of nerve injury involved and that still can be the case, but it kind of looks like what we call like a TFCC. It's a triangle, triangular fibrocartilage complex, and that's like a sheath that attaches on your wrist. And if that tore, that's not good news. What's going to end up happening is um, he's going to get a lot of swelling, a lot of inflammation in the wrist. It could have happened um, previously and got some damage, and then this is kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. But if that does happen, he's going to require what they call a scope surgery for his wrist, and then he can make it back for the season, but that would definitely put a timetable of a few weeks on at least if that was the injury. Um, he's going to have an MRI on Monday, so we're going to figure out more information then. But as of now, uh, I'm leaning towards that, which is a little bit more severe than just a traditional like wrist sprain, as they're kind of calling it right now. And they showed a picture of his hand at one point, which looked really swollen. Yes. Like it, it didn't look in good shape. Not good shape. Yeah. As soon as you saw that, you knew that there was more damage than just like a traditional sprain. Now, it could be a severe sprain. And the fact that he couldn't hold on to the ball could be related to like his nerves, like his ulnar nerve not being able to grip. But I think based off of like just seeing what I saw after, I think that he probably has more of like that cartilage tear, which might end up requiring surgery if it's severe enough. And either way, they, they're at the point of the season where they're in such a hole that, you know, if he misses a couple of games and they lose both of them, like it's almost not worth bringing him back at that point because yeah. you're done. Like they've, they have no margin for error at this point. And if there's error, they're their season's over. Yep. If they beat the Ravens, they were above a 50% chance to make the playoffs. And now they're at like, what, 21, 22%, something like that. So yeah. it's going to be a tough hill to climb. I, I hope that he makes it back for the season and that they're in a spot for contention. But if not, it might be wise for them to just to hold them out. A um, couple of other quarterbacks that have been dealing with injuries to their hands, thumb, generally. Uh, Fields and Stafford both supposedly back this week. 
Stafford coming off the bye. They obviously signed Carson Wentz to be the backup um, in, in Los Angeles, and then Justin Fields reclaiming his job from Tyson Bajan. What should we expect from both those guys? Yeah, Sam, this is actually a really interesting duo of injuries here because we're going to be able to tell pretty fast how their hand feels. Um, the number one thing that will decline following a UCL injury, which is what both of them had, except um, Fields was a little worse with the dislocation, uh, is accuracy. Okay, because their inability to grip and to um, actually use their thumb when they throw is going to detriment their accuracy, even though they say even more than power. Okay, so we're going to be able to notice that right away. And the fact that both of them are coming in like almost in a questionable week tells me that they'll know right away if this is too flared up and if it's hurting too much during the game. So I'm going to be watching closely if both of them can make it through without having a setback or a flare up of that thumb. Um, we also are getting Devin Achan back, mm -hmm. and possibly Justin Jefferson as well. Um, yeah. I saw some video of him warming up, going through some drills. Looked fine, but obviously that's not 100% uh, go with that hamstring. So right. what should we expect for both those guys? Yeah, so um, Devon Achan, he's very interesting because his style of play is fast, quick twitch, cutting, and having an MCL injury relies a ton of that. that that's on the middle part of your knee so he's going to be doing a lot of lateral movement so we're going to see how that really holds up um, i wouldn't be surprised if he has a little bit of decrease in productivity just coming off of that normally they say there's about 11 percent dip in running back productivity after an mcl injury uh, so he might have that, but he also might be on a snap count limitation. Okay, um, Mostert's still there, and so he might just be kind of eased back into things. I wouldn't be surprised if um, we get a good taste on like how he's really feeling, though, after he tries to break off a couple of those long runs that we're used to seeing. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about um, Deshaun Watson, but I do want to just ask, how much is the current injury, this new fracture, how much is that affected by like, the mess that his shoulder has been for this entire season, effectively. Yeah, I don't think... Because <laughs> this isn't like... I mean, it, you know, this is not... This wasn't the injury the whole way, you know, and they or they made it... Like, this is a new thing. They He's fractured this bone that right. wasn't what the injury was to start with. But how yeah. much was this impacted by all of the messing around with his shoulder so far? I, that is really hard to tell. But normally when you see some type of, like, fracture, it usually doesn't play a part in like a previous injury to that area um for him i just i'm really surprised that he's been battling this same shoulder issue week after week and then it just so happens that that same shoulder is now developed a fracture it's just kind of interesting to me and now the part of the shoulder that's fractured is like his actual socket in the back now i did laugh because somebody said it might have even been his agent that like his shoulder would just fall apart if he yeah said, I, I i don't know medical terminology <laughs> that well but i don't think his shoulder is going to fall apart but i do think that it means that it's unstable and that there's a chance of like dislocation or more severity of the fracture well it was supposed to be a displaced fracture right it was yeah so which means that if he got hit again the joint isn't as secure because yeah. the 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 socket was fractured which means that there could be a chance of posterior dislocation of his humerus that still wouldn't disintegrate a shoulder or whatever. But I do think that, um, I mean, yeah, obviously he's done. He'll be fine starting next year. I think the surgery is going to be um, well in hand by the time the season starts. I don't think that it really played a significant role in what happened previously. Then on the bright side, if they go in for surgery and he elects for just like, you know, um, whatever they can find to clean up, right. they might do might some. as well overhaul the whole thing while you're in there. Might <laughs> do some rotator cuff repair. Yeah, absolutely. And then also like just bouncing back to Justin Jefferson real quick because right. we um, hopped over him with, with the hamstring. I do think like he's going to, if he plays, he, need, he like we talked about he needs to be that 100% and being in a limited practice it, that means that he might not have uh tested a certain um like a certain couple traits that he needs like for example like a full sprint or um some of the agility work that he really wants to push he's got to test and be completely okay with that now what he reported is he feel he he's feeling a little sore afterward now, is sore just because you haven't worked that muscle as much, or is sore like a pain? So I'm really interested to see if he comes out and plays um, following that remark. I don't see 
him coming in and then just being full go. So I'm sure they're going to keep him on a snap count. But even though if he feels 100%, they might just try to limit that just for risk of injury. Um, and then the last player to talk about, going back to the Browns, Nick Chubb had a mm -hmm. second surgery on his knee. Is yeah. that an indication of um, bigger problems, setbacks, or is that just part of the process here? Well, you remember initially when he got injured and they were like, well, it wasn't actually as bad as we thought? Right. Well, now that the surgeries happened, it kind of came out. So initially, his first surgery was his MCL, his meniscus, and his medial capsule. So all on the inside of his knee, middle part. Um, that all got repaired. What they had to do is they had to wait for now that that surgery is starting to heal. And that already hard. sounds bad. Oh, that itself. <laughs> I know. It's just like, well, geez, that's a lot. So he had all of that done. And then he had to repair that, uh, get some healing, get the swelling down. And now he's going in for his ACL. So this is going to be the ACL reconstruction, which makes it just that straight operation of just the ACL and not the other mess. But it also allows for him to not have the amount of swelling if they would have done everything at once. But then you remember, this counts usually nine months from now, right. not nine months from his first surgery. So this is going to be interesting to see how he does when he returns at the beginning of next year because we're going to start counting this timeline from his surgery coming up. And, you know, exactly when he's cleared to return, we don't really know. But I think that, you know, continuing to track his rehab is going to be important. What is the impact on rehab when you're doing, when you're dealing with like multiple things at the same time? Because presumably with an ACL, you know, once you're, the surgery's done and it's strengthening, then you have a very specific rehab program to sort of strengthen everything around the ACL and like it's one thing you're dealing with, right? Right. When you have the ACL in addition to the MCL and the meniscus and all the other crap that they tidied up, like now the entire knee needs like, you know, how does the rehab get impacted by now? Everything needs to be worked on. Yeah. I, um, to sum it up in a simple way, it's about like dynamic stability. So when you have multiple ligaments that are torn and especially to the significance of this, you're gonna have to really, really work on stabilizing that entire knee dynamically, meaning through movement sideways, forward, backwards, jumping, everything. It's not just the straight motions that the ACL are contributing to, but it's all of the inside of the knee. So his cutting laterally, his jumping and landing and letting his knee collapse in, he has to be so stable there that they're not worried at all that anything's gonna give out. So it's gonna add a little bit more to his timeline for sure. It's gonna be a little bit more intensive rehab and aggressive. Um, that's why I'm just kind of interested to see like come next year, are we gonna look at him and he's gonna be the same player? Is he gonna still be in rehab? Is he gonna miss training camp? It's just gonna be interesting. Right, so it does lengthen the, the actual uh, timeline for rehab as well as presumably increasing the just the volume of stuff you have to do whilst right. you're rehabbing. Right, yeah, like you said, like just his first surgery itself sounded pretty crazy. Yeah. And then you're adding the ACL repair and all the rehab that would be associated with that. Yes, there is overlap to some of that, but this extent of that just greatens because of the magnitude of that injury. All right, that'll do it for our boo-boo breakdown, the injury breakdown with Vic this week, and that'll do it for the PFF NFL podcast this week as well. We will be back on Monday. Talk to you then.